Our scripture reading this morning is from the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, now moving down to verse 36, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go to your respective classes. Listen up, youth, junior high, senior high. Save your bulletin. This is under the command, or this is at uh, the command of your supreme commander, Tyler. He said, uh, take your bulletin home. You know why. Bring it Wednesday night. Uh, Tyler has been leading our youth going through the order of worship and giving the theological reason. Why do we have this order of worship? Why do we have an invocation? Why do we have a call to worship? Uh, and our youth have, have been studying the theology behind this. So save your bulletin for Wednesday night. Bring them on Wednesday evening. If you're visiting, we have been involved for the last six months uh, in a study in the gospel according to Luke. Uh, we have we're going line by line, verse by verse, uh, episode by episode, seeking to once more look at the life of Jesus Christ, the radical nature of that life, the truth of who he is, and the truth of who we are supposed to be. In the late 80s, about 1989, uh, I came to look 
at the Gospel of Matthew to study that Gospel for an entire year. It turned out to be two years preaching each Sunday. And during that time, and I, I came to it prayerfully, and I asked the Lord to really cause me to see the person of Christ as I'd never seen him before, the call of Christ. That had a radical effect upon me. And I had a radical effect upon my preaching. Uh, I hope that as we go through Luke, that you are reading along with Luke. It, it's all right to just, you know, to say, I'm going to just stay in the gospel of Luke for the duration of the year. It's going to be the center of my devotions. Anytime I read scripture, this is where I'm going to be. And read, reread it. Look at the passage where we'll be next week. Read it. Look at it. I promise you that it will make a difference. Not only in what you see and hear on the Lord's Day morning as we open the gospel according to Luke. But uh, it will affect you. It will affect how you live. Because Christ does indeed. He does indeed call us to live lives that are radically different. From this world. That's why this morning, the title of our message, The Magnanimous Disposition of Jesus' Upside Down Kingdom. In chapters 5 and 6, Luke is focused on two things. First, Jesus calling his disciples. That's why Dutch. Just sang to him. He sang this morning. Aren't they? That, that is, thank you, Dutch, for the work you've done on those, uh, the Beatitudes and uh, the calling of the disciples. But that's a, a that's one of the focus. That's a, that's a focus that Luke has in chapters five and six. But there's a second focus, and it goes right along with calling the disciples. He sets before them what it will mean to follow him. He set before them, and of course in Matthew, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, you have the Sermon on the Mount. Well, this is a boiled down version in Luke of the Sermon on the Mount. He's dealing with the same thing that Matthew did, the fuller versions in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But why did he do that right at the beginning of his ministry? He paired it with the calling of the disciples right after he, he finally named the 12. What did he do? He sat down. It's no accident. He sat down with those 12 and then with the greater, larger, wider number of disciples and he began to talk to them about his kingdom, the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God will be like. He was describing the radical nature, the kingdom in which they would live. It's an upside-down kingdom. Why is it upside-down? You look at how the kingdoms of this world, how the life of this world, what's the philosophy of this world? And Jesus just, Jesus just takes that and he turns it upside-down. He says, here's how my kingdom, if you live in my kingdom, 
And there is. There's a radical transformation in the way we live when we begin to follow Jesus Christ. If here's a life in the world and the person becomes a Christian, something is wrong unless his life, the way that he lives, if it doesn't radically change over the years, he's not hearing. He's not listening. He's following Christ at such a distance he can't even see. Jesus begins by talking about their relationship to God. And he says, here's the way to your relationship with God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. The world looks at that and says, that's not the way to joy. That's not the way to happiness. Jesus said, here's the true way to happen. If you want to be happy, you want to be fulfilled, you want to know God, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who readily confess their sin. It's an upside down kingdom. Then he told them that in his upside down kingdom, people would love their enemies. Out in the world, the world never says love your enemies. The world doesn't say pray for those who abuse you. Do good to them that curse you. <laughs> That's strange. The world says, no, we're going to do that. That's what, that's a normal life. That's the norm. That's, that's the norm to which God has called us. It's a radical norm, but it's a norm. And the kingdom of God has been known for the last 2,000 years. The kingdom of Christ has been known for this truth. Kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, they loved their enemies. It was that love that converted the Roman Empire. The third characteristic is upside down kingdom we read this morning. The kingdoms of this world are always finding fault with each other. It's like Adam pointed at Eve and said, it's her fault. <laughs> That's the way the world has been doing since the fall of man. Friends are critical of friends. Family is critical of family. Neighbors are critical of each other. Different cultures are critical. And Jesus said, my kingdom will be upside down. We saw it in, in what we read with Blake. My kingdom, he said, will not be known for criticism in a judgmental attitude. You think about the history of the church and how often the world looks at us and they don't hear the gospel. They hear judgment. They are judgmental, and certainly, certainly there's a certainly there's an accounting. But he said, "My kingdom will be known as a magnanimous kingdom in their disposition." We need to hear this before we do. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess as we read these words this morning. We, it's a habit, a worldly habit that is deep within our souls to speak in judgment, to speak condemning, to speak destructive words. And often in finding a delight in doing it as we pretend that we are so much better than the rest. Oh, Father, we pray that you would transform our hearts this morning, transform our minds, 
John Sartell cannot do that. Any man who stands behind this desk can't do that. So we cast ourselves upon your mercy and your grace, and we pray that you, we would hear your voice in our hearts this morning. When we leave here in a few minutes, may we know we have heard you. Prepare us to come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to see first in this passage, as we look at the magnanimous disposition of Jesus' upside-down kingdom, I want you to see first that destructive and condemning criticism. Destructive and condemning criticism will always be a self-indictment. Look at Luke 6, 37 and 38. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgiven, you will be forgiven. Given, given, it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I want you to read that with me. Read it aloud. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. To you. If you just understand those words, it should shake us to the core of our being. The Greek word there for measure is the word from which we get our word meter. The meters you use to measure others are the same meters that I will you to judge that I will use to judge you. It's as if God, he doesn't need his word. Set the Bible aside. Just, just put a tape recorder around our neck. Put a tape recorder around John Sartell's neck. It records my every word that I say, every word as I condemn others, as I critique others. It records. All that God has to do is play that back to judge me by the same words I use to judge others. God is saying, don't you understand every time, John, that you condemn others? It's an indictment against you. It's a self-indictment. Paul understood and he repeated this concept from Jesus. Look at Romans 2, 1 on your scripture sheet. Powerful words. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the very same things. Do you ever said of someone as you saw what they did I would never do anything like that only a fool would do that and before the months out you're the fool because you've done pretty much the same thing I was reading an article about a man in, in Memphis at breakfast table one morning reading the the Commercial appeal. And, <clears throat> excuse me, 
And he had left his, as he, he went into a convenience store, he left his car outside, not only with the keys in it, but he left it running. When he came back out, after several minutes in the store, his car was gone. I read that. Janet, that man was a fool. He deserved to have his car stolen. Who's dumb enough not only to leave his car unlocked, but to leave it running? Two days later, I was on my way to play tennis. I realized I was out of tennis balls. And I stopped at this store in our neighborhood. I knew where the tennis balls were. They were just inside the door on the right. There was a cash register there. I parked right at the front door, jumped out, left the car running. I was only going to be gone a minute. <laughs> Ran in, got the tennis balls, walked out, and my car was gone. I stood there, and, and I remembered. I mean, I wasn't standing there panicking, saying, I've just lost a car. I was already thinking about what I'd said at the breakfast table. Now, the story has a good ending. Uh, Larry Shelley, who claims to be a friend of mine, <laughs> was my opponent that day, and as he was driving by, he saw me run in. He parked his van, ran over, got my car, and parked it behind his van, and then watched with demonic amusement as I stood there. But the point is, I had spoken to this fool that had done this, and I did the same thing 48 hours later. I challenge you, the next time you find yourself pointing the finger at someone, write it down. I challenge you, do this. Do this. Write down your criticism. We would all be better to do that. It would, it would cause us. Our tongues would become a lot kinder, a lot nicer, and a lot merciful, a lot more merciful. Write down the criticism. Write it down. And see how long it is before you do that for which you've condemned someone else. Jesus said, John, the ruler, the meter that you use on others is the same meter I'll use on you. Destructive and con condemning criticism is self-indictment. Secondly, I want you to see that magnanimous words of grace and mercy to others reflects God's words of mercy to you. Look at Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, it will be poured into your lap. The meaning of this verse has been completely ruined by the avarice of the profiteers who call themselves evangelical ministers on television and in many pulpits across this land. 
They will say to their congregations in order to raise money, you can't outgive God. I challenge you, you just write a check to God and God's going to give you back more. And that's true. You can't outgive God. In, a, in your gifts and tithes, you can't do it. It's impossible to, to give him more than he's given us. But that's not what Jesus was saying here. And it's a gross, demonic representation, misrepresentation of what the Bible teaches. He was not speaking here of what we give to God monetarily. He was speaking of the spirit by which we deal with the sins of our neighbors. And that's much, much more serious. The image here is one of flour being me measured out. And God said, I'll shake the flour in the, in the measure, squeezing all the air I can out of it. Then I'll pack it down and I'll add more to it. That's the picture. He is saying... If we see our neighbor's sin and we give mercy, if we take mercy by the bushel and pour it all over our neighbor's sin, God will pour out mercy on us by the truckloads. If we pour out mercy on our neighbor's sin by the truckloads, God will pour out on our sins, his mercy on our sins by the trainloads. Now, we must be careful. Our mercy to others is not the source of God's mercy to us. God's mercy to us in Christ at Calvary is the source of our mercy to others. It's not my mercy to Larry Shelley. It's not my mercy to him that earns God's mercy. To me. But it's because of God's mercy to me that I must be merciful to Larry Shelley or to Mike Atkinson. And both of them are hard to be merciful to. The, the, the cross, our relationship with God, our relationship with Christ is the source. Our mercy reflects. So you've got to ask yourself this question. If my life is not showing forth mercy, how can I claim that I know about the mercy of Christ? Lauren Winter wrote a thought-provoking book, Girl Meets God. She chronicles her journey as a young Jewish girl to Christ. And she talks about a journey to the Messiah. It took years. It's a beautiful story. After she had become a Christian, in reading scripture, she believed that it was her responsibility as a Christian to confess her sins on a regular basis, not only to God, but to some other person. And she took this seriously. And so she chose an Episcopal minister 
who and, and she chose this certain method because she had heard about him, heard that he was, he was very biblical. But it was important that she did not want to go talk to someone about her sins that she knew or that knew her. And so for several weeks, she wrote out her sins. And then she went to this Episcopal minister to confess her sins. She said she knew that her confession was real when she got past the general sins and got down to the dirt and specifics. And here was a real live human being listening to all her dirt. After she finished, the minister said, is that all? Have, she had several yellow legal sheets. And she said, have you gotten each one? And she said, yes, I'm through. And he took the sheets, reached out and took the sheets, and he began to tear them. And he said this, your sins are forgiven you by the blood of Christ. And then he added these precious words. Pray for me, a fellow sinner. He spoke mercy. He could not dare say, how could you call yourself a Christian and do such things? Because as he heard her confession, he not only knew she was a sinner, but he knew that his confession would be similar. Your sins are forgiven you by the blood of Christ. Pray for me, a fellow sinner. Destructive and condemning criticism is self-indictment. Magnanimous words of grace to others reflects God's words of grace to you. And so if you're not saying magnanimous words of mercy to the world around you, you've got to question do I, do I really understand the mercy, the magnanimous mercy that I've received? And then lastly, this leads us to our last point. The way we see ourselves, the way we see ourselves will determine is the key to how we will see others. Look at verse 39. He also told them this parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. When you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, usually when we take on that superior attitude and we critique, we say, I do it better than you do it. I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I, that, that, I, I'm not into sin like you are. I would never do anything like that. 
You see, the way we see ourselves will determine how we see others. And it's a, a hilarious picture. And Jesus means for it to be hilarious. Here's a blind man. He's blind as a bat. He can't see it. He's working his way along this very precarious path. And a man walks up to him and he says, I'm not blind like you are. Here, I'll help you. And Jesus says, the man that is offering to help here is as blind as the guy that's trying to help. He said, did you understand that? When we critique others like we so often do, we're actually the blind leading the blind. We're blind to our own sins. We're blind to who we are. Let me tell you something. If you're known, you know, go home, ask your children, ask your husband, wife, ask your parents. Do you speak healing words? Do you speak merciful words? Or are you always critical and condemning? Because chances are, if you're condemning, you really don't understand you're a sinner. I can tell you. It's a mark. You don't understand the sin in your own heart. We look at others with a sense of self-righteousness. If we know that we sin just like our neighbor, then we will say to our neighbor, neighbor, I'm overboard in the sea. I'm shipwrecked just like you are. And we both need Jesus. Jesus told a parable about this. It's recorded in the book of Matthew and Matthew 18. And I want to close the message today by simply reading. This is on your scripture sheet. Matthew 18, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, beg, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now, the figures used there are not by accident. 10,000 talents. That, that in money today, that would be $20 million. An impossible sum to repay. That's what Jesus was saying. 10,000, that's an impossible, it's a, it was just an impossible debt. Why? Because he wanted to reflect the debt that we owe. And the man goes out, he's forgiven of this huge debt. And he goes out and he meets a friend, a fellow servant, who owes him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii. This man had been in, in you know, in, in denarius, denarii. 
This man had been given, been forgiven 30 million denarii. 30 million. And he refused to forgive a debt of 100 denarii. That's a good parable to tie onto the scripture that we read this morning. Folks, we're coming to this table now. That's 30 million denarii right there. This represents a debt that has been paid for all of us. An unpayable debt. You couldn't pay it. I couldn't pay it. No one could pay it. And Jesus paid it all. Can you really come to this table and walk out that door and say, well, you know, it really didn't take that much mercy to save me. I'm better than that person over there. And I can critique that person over there because I'm not like that person. I'm not a sinner like that. And you have been shown mercy. We have been shown mercy for an impossible debt. Amen.